Section 11 of Out of Mulberry Street by Jacob A. Rees. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 11. The Christening in Bottle Alley. In the Mulberry Street Court. Spooning in Dynamite Alley. The Christening in Bottle Alley. All Bottle Alley was bidden to the christening, it being Sunday, when Mulberry Street was wont to adjust its differences over the cards and the wine-cup, it came healed, ready for what might befall. From Tommaso, the rag-picker in the farthest rear cellar, to Signor Undertaker, mainstay and umpire in the varying affairs of life, which had a habit in the bend of lapsing suddenly upon his professional domain, they were all there, the men of Malpete's village. The baby was named for the village saint, so that it was a kind of communal feast as well. Carmen was there with her man, and Francisco Cesari. If Carmen had any other name, neither Mulberry Street nor the alley knew it. She was Carmen to them when, seven years before, she had taken up with Francisco, then a young mountaineer, straight as the cedar of his native hills, the breath of which was yet in the songs with which he wooed her. Whether the priest had blessed their bonds no one knew or asked. The bend only knew that one day, after three years during which the Francisco tenement had been the scene of more than one jealous quarrel, not, it was whispered, without cause, the mountaineer was missing. He did not come back. From over the sea the bend heard, after a while, that he had reappeared in the old village to claim the sweetheart he had left behind. In the course of time new arrivals brought the news that Francisco was married and that they were living happily, as a young couple should. At the news Mulberry Street looked askance at Carmen, but she gave no sign. By tacit consent she was the widow Carmen after that. The summers passed. The fourth brought Francisco Cesari, come back to seek his fortune, with his wife and baby. He greeted old friends effusively, and made cautious inquiries about Carmen. When told that she had consoled herself with his old rival, Luigi, with whom she was then living in Bottle Alley, he laughed with a light heart, and took up his abode within half a dozen doors of the alley. That was but a short time before the christening at Malpete's. There their paths crossed each other for the first time since his flight. She met him with a smile on her lips, but with hate in her heart. He, manlike, saw only the smile. The men smoking and drinking in the court watched them speak apart, saw him, with the laugh that sat so lightly upon his lips, turn to his wife, sitting by the hydrant with the child, and heard him say, "'Look, Carmen, our baby!' The woman bent over it, and, as she did, the little one woke suddenly out of its sleep, and cried out in a fright. It was noticed that Carmen smiled again then, and that the young mother shivered, why she herself could not have told. Francisco, joining the group at the farther end of the yard, said carelessly that she had forgotten. They poked fun at him, and spoke Carmen's name loudly, with laughter. From the tenement, as they did, came Luigi and asked threateningly who insulted his wife. They only laughed the more, said he had drunk too much wine, and, shouldering him out, bade him go look to his woman. He went. Carmen had witnessed it all from the house. She called him a coward and goaded him with bitter taunts, until, mad with anger and drink, he went out in the court once more and shook his fist in the face of Francisco. 
They hailed his return with bantering words. Luigi was spoiling for a fight. They laughed, and would find one before the day was much older. But suddenly silence fell upon the group. Carmen stood on the step, pale and cold. She hid something under her apron. "'Luigi!' she called, and he came to her. She drew from under the apron a cocked pistol, and, pointing to Francisco, pushed it into his hand. At the sight the alley was cleared as suddenly as if a tornado had swept through it. Malpete's guests leaped over fences, dived into cellarways, anywhere for shelter. The door of the woodshed slammed behind Francisco just as his old rival reached it. The maddened man tore it open and dragged him out by the throat. He pinned him against the fence and leveled the pistol with frenzied curses. They died on his lips. The face that was turning livid in his grasp was the face of his boyhood's friend. They had gone to school together, danced together at the fairs in the old days. They had been friends till Carmen came. The muzzle of the weapon fell. "'Shoot!' said a hard voice behind him. Carmen stood there with face of stone. She stamped her foot. "'Shoot!' she commanded, pointing relentless at the struggling man. "'Coward! Shoot!' Her lover's finger crooked itself upon the trigger. A shriek, wild and despairing, rang through the alley. A woman ran madly from the house, flew across the pavement, and fell panting at Carmen's feet. "'Mother of God! Mercy!' she cried, thrusting her babe before the assassin's weapon. "'Jesus, Maria! Carmen, the child! He is my husband!' No gleam of pity came into the cold eyes. Only hatred, fierce and bitter, was there. In one swift, sweeping glance she saw it all. The woman fawning at her feet, the man she hated, limp and helpless in the grasp of her lover. "'He was mine once,' she said, and he had no mercy. She pushed the baby aside. "'Coward! Shoot!' The shot was drowned in the shriek, hopeless, despairing, of the widow who fell upon the body of Francisco as it slipped lifeless from the grasp of the assassin. The christening party saw Carmen standing over the three, with the same pale smile on her cruel lips. For once the bend did not shield a murderer. The door of the tenement was shut against him. The women spurned him. The very children spat at him as he fled to the street. The police took him there. With him they seized Carmen. She made no attempt to escape. She had bided her time, and it had come. She had her revenge. To the end of its lurid life, Bottle Alley remembered it as the murder accursed of God. In the Mulberry Street Court Conduct unbecoming an officer, read the charge. In this, to wit, that the said defendants brought into the station-house, by means to deponent unknown, on the said fourth of July, a keg of beer, and, when apprehended, were consuming the contents of the same. Twenty policemen, comprising the whole platoon of the East 104th Street squad, answered the charge as defendants. They had been caught grouped about a pot of chowder and the fatal keg in the top-floor dormitory, singing, Beer, beer, glorious beer! Sergeant McNally and Roundsman Stevenson interrupted the proceedings. The commissioner's eyes bulged as, at the call of the complaint clerk, 
the twenty marched up and ranged themselves in rows, three deep, before him. They took the oath collectively, with a toss and a smack, as if to say, I don't care if I do, and told separately and identically the same story, while the sergeant stared and the commissioner's eyes grew bigger and rounder. Missing his reserves, Sergeant McNally had sent the roundsmen in search of them. He was slow in returning, and the sergeant went on a tour of inspection himself. He journeyed to the upper region, and there came upon the party in full swing. Then and there he called the roll. Not one of the platoon was missing. They formed a hollow square around something that looked uncommonly like a beer keg. A number of tin growlers stood beside it. The sergeant picked up one and turned the tap. There was enough left in the keg to barely half fill it. Seeing that, the platoon followed him downstairs without a murmur. One by one the twenty took the stand after the sergeant had left it, and testified without a tremor that they had seen no beer keg. In fact, the majority would not know one if they saw it. They were tired and hungry, having been held in reserve all day, when a pleasant smell assailed their nostrils. Each of the twenty followed his nose independently to the top floor, where he was surprised to see the rest gathered about a pot of steaming chowder. He joined the circle and partook of some. It was good. As to beer, he had seen none and drunk less. There was something there of wood with a brass handle to it. What it was, none of them seemed to know. They were all shocked at the idea that it might have been a beer keg. Such things are forbidden in police stations. The sergeant himself could not tell how it could have got in there, while stoutly maintaining that it was a keg. He scratched his head and concluded that it might have come over the roof or, somehow, from a building that is in course of erection next door. The chowder had come in by the main door. At least one policeman had seen it carried upstairs. He had fallen in behind it immediately. When the commissioner had heard this story told exactly twenty times, the platoon fell in and marched off to the elevated station. When he can decide what punishment to inflict on a policeman who does not know a beer keg when he sees it, they all will be fined accordingly, and a doorman, who has served a term as a barkeeper, will be sent to the East 104th Street Station to keep the police there out of harm's way. Spooning in Dynamite Alley Dynamite Alley is bereft. Its spring spooning is over. Once more the growler has the right of way. But what good is it, with Kate Cassidy hiding in her third floor back, her steady hiding from the police, and Tom Hart laid up in hospital with two of his slats stove in, all along of their spieling? There will be nothing now to heave a brick at on a dark night, and no chance for a row for many a day to come. No wonder Dynamite Alley is out of sorts. It got its name from the many rows that travelled in the wake of the growler out and in at the three-foot gap between brick walls, which was a garden walk when the front house was young and pansies and spiderwort grew in the back lot. These many years a tenement has stood there, and as it grew older and more dilapidated, rows multiplied and grew noisier, until the explosive name was hooked to the alley by the neighbours and stuck. It was long after that that the Cassidys, father and daughter, came to live in it, and also the Hearts. 
Their coming wrought no appreciable change, except that it added another and powerful one to the dynamic forces of the alley, jealousy. Kate is pretty. She is blonde and she is twenty. She greases plates in a pie bakery in Sullivan Street by day, and so earns her own living. Of course she is a favourite. There isn't a ball going on that she doesn't attend, or a picnic either. It was at one of them, the last of the hounds' balls, that she met George Finnegan. There weren't many hours after that when they didn't meet. He made the alley his headquarters by day and by night. On the morning after the ball he scandalized it by spooning with Kate from daybreak till nine o'clock. By the middle of the afternoon he was back again, and all night, till everyone was asleep, he and Kate held the alley by main strength, as it were, the fact being that when they were in it no one could pass. Their spooning blocked it, blocked the way of the growler. The alley called it mean, and trouble began promptly. After that things fell by accident out of the windows of the rear tenement, when Kate and George Finnegan were sitting in the doorway. They tried to reduce the chances of a hit, as much as might be, by squeezing into the space of one, at which the alley jeered. Sometimes one of the tenants would jostle them in the yard and give lip, in the alley's vernacular, and Kate would retort with dignity, "'Excuse yourself. You don't know who you're talking to.' It had to come to it, and it did. Finnegan had been continuing the siege since the warm weather set in. He was a good spieler, Kate gave in to that. But she hadn't taken him for her steady yet, though the alley let on it thought so. Her steady is away at sea. George evidently thought the time ripe for cutting him out. His spooning ran into the small hours of the morning, night after night. It was near one a.m. that morning when Thomas Hart came down to the yard, stumbled over the pair in the doorway, and made remarks. As he passed out of sight, George, the swain, said, "'If he gives me any more lip when he comes back, I'll swing on him.' And just then Hart came back. He did give lip, and George swung on him. It took him in the eye, and he fell. Then he jumped on him and stove in his slats. Kate ran. After all, George Finnegan was not game. When Hart's wife came down to see who groaned in the yard, and, finding her husband, let out those blood-curdling yells which made Kate Cassidy hide in an ice-wagon halfway down the block, he deserted Kate and ran. Mistress Hart's yells brought Policeman Devery. He didn't ask whence they came, but made straight for the alley. Mistress Hart was there, vowing vengeance upon Kate Cassidy's feller, who had done up her man. She vowed vengeance in such a loud voice that the alley trembled with joyful excitement when Kate, down the street, crept farther into the ice-wagon, trembling also, but with fear. Kate is not a fighter. She is too good-looking for that. The policeman found her there and escorted her home, past the heart door, after he had sent Mr. Hart to the hospital, where the doctors fixed his slats, ribs, that is to say. Mistress Hart, outnumbered, fell back and organized an ambush, vowing that she would lay Kate out yet. Discovering that the floods next door had connived at her enemy's descent by way of their fire escape, she included them in the siege by prompt declaration of war upon the whole floor. The cause of it all, safe in the bakery, suspended the greasing of pie-plates long enough to give her version of the row. 
"'We were a-sittin' there, quiet and peaceful-like,' she said, "'when Mr. Hart came along and made remarks, and George, he give it back to him good. "'Oh,' says he, "'you ain't a thousand, you're only one,' and he went. "'When he came back, George, he stood up, and Mr. Hart, he says to me, "'You're not an upstairs girl, you can be called down.' and George he up and struck him. I didn't wait for no more. I just run out of the alley. Is he hurt it bad? Who is George? He is me feller. I met him at the Hounds Ball in Germania Hall, and he treated me same as you would any lady. We danced together and had a couple of drinks, and he took me home. George ain't me steady, you know. Me regular he is to see. See? I didn't see nothing. I hid in the wagon while I heard him callin' names. I wasn't goin' in till Mr. Deavy, Policeman Devery, he came along. I told him I was scared, and he said, Oh, come along. But I was dead scared. Say, you won't forget to come to our picnic, the pie girls, will you? It'll be great. End of section 11